This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You can't be half pregnant, my mother always said. So either you're the world leader in authentic modern design or you're not. I preach this to this day of one knockoff in the mix, you're, you're done. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to John Edelman. John Edelman is a respected leader in the design community with decades of experience in all aspects of the business of design. From 2010 to 2019, he was CEO of Design Within Reach. During his tenure at Design Within Reach, John transformed the business from a struggling, money-losing purveyor of both authentic and knockoff goods to the world leader in authentic modern design. John's visionary collaborations with some of today's most talented designers resulted in scores of successful collections of modern furniture. Subsequently, Design Within Reach became a highly respected business, resulting in an internationally publicized sale to Herman Miller. John also serves as executive chairman of the board for Krypton, sits on the board of trustees for Design Industries Foundation Fighting AIDS, and on the board of directors of Be Original Americas. He is currently co-founder of beverage brand Fourth and Pride Vodka, which donates 5% of profits to LGBTQ plus organizations, combining Edelman's business acumen with his lifelong advocacy work. Plus, he's got a famous watch collection and stories galore. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Here's John. Hello, my name is John Edelman. I live and work currently in Westport, Connecticut. And I'm involved in a few different projects, all of which I find pretty exciting uh, at the moment. I am the executive chairman of Krypton Fabrics, which is an interesting kind of part-time gig where I go to Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And I do that because I, I have a long history with Krypton. They believe that my skill set could help them out at this stage of their growth. I'm working on a television show, which I can't talk about too much, but regards design and a design competition out of Brooklyn. And it's with people that I adore. And I believe it'll bring a spotlight to young designers and young designers really, really need any attention they can possibly get. And my most full-time job at the moment is co-founder of Fourth and Pride Vodka. I love that project because it's doing well by doing good. And we give a portion of our proceeds to support LGBTQ plus organizations. And I am a true blue vodka lover as well. Those are the three projects that are keeping me occupied the most. 
That's quite a cocktail of opportunities and endeavors. So I can't wait to get into all of them. But before we get into that, I really always like to go way back to the beginning so I can understand how you became the person you are by tracing the steps from day one. It's, it's so interesting. I've always considered myself you know, one of the luckiest people out there because you know everybody says they complain about their childhood, they had this and that. I, I truly did love my childhood. I'm the youngest child of six children, uh, the youngest by 15 years between the oldest and myself, and five years younger than the second closest. Born in Manhattan in the West Village. When I was born, six kids was enough to have in a brownstone. My parents couldn't survive there anymore, so they moved to Connecticut. and went from being city people to country people. We bought 50 acres in the corner of a town called Ridgefield, Connecticut in horse country. And so where the older kids were raised in the city, I was raised on a horse farm. By the time I was three years old, uh, the oldest three kids had gone off to college. So it was really just the three of us on this 50 acres with horses and dogs and, and all this kind of stuff. So I had almost the opposite experience of my older siblings. The house was pretty amazing. My parents were big dreamers and they found two barns four miles away took them apart and had them rebuilt on our property as our home. Wow. So we had soaring ceilings and they took the exterior barn wood and installed it on the interior of the house. You know, I thought it was normal to live in a place like that. It was, you know, <laughs> pretty cool. Uh, we had, they had a mixture of old masters paintings on the walls with dogs ripping apart cows and blood and meat next to Tiffany lamps, next to more hall sketches, next to a Saranen womb chair. With a, wow. with a uh, you know a huge floss light in the middle. That sounds like my subconscious. <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds like a weird dream. I was lucky enough to, to really grow up in this home and have all these influences. I didn't understand how they affected me, but they did. My parents had basically all gay friends from the design industries, and I thought that was normal. I didn't understand that was rare. And we had collectors. We had a designer named Ken Scott, who was a fabric designer that I think uh, Prada or, or Chanel is bringing back his fabrics right now. He'd come to the house and he'd be flamboyant and he'd cook dinner for the family in like a barrel because we were so many people and tell crazy stories about the gay bars in New York from the night before and make my mother laugh. And we had Italians stay with us, you know, always the kids of whatever company my parents were involved with at the time, you know, from Italy coming over and, and living with us for the summer and we should mention that the the Italians were coming over as part of the leather business that your your parents were running. Well, originally it was different. It was the shoe business that my father started. Their background was interesting. That affects my life a lot. My father was from the Bronx, kosher upbringing. My, his father lost all of his money in the Great Depression. They went from being wealthy to not wealthy. My father was also the youngest, also by 15 years, also Loved like crazy as a baby. And when he graduated from high school, he went into the Navy in World War II. He knew he didn't like the Navy. When he got out, he had a choice to, to choose a college on the GI Bill. And he had a brother-in-law who was this interesting composer named George Kleinsinger. He wrote Tubby the Tuba. And he lived in the Chelsea Hotel. And he took my dad aside. He said, listen, Arthur, this is your chance to change your life. Pick a school that does something you never thought you'd do. So he chose Sarah Lawrence College. He was the first class ever of men to ever go there, four men, to an all-girls college. And in my father's description, he got some fucking education, <laughs> which was very much my father. And he, and he met my mother there. My parents have passed on, but I can tell this part that he said when, when he goosed her, she was the one who made the loudest noise. And he, <laughs> she, and he fell in love with her. And, and so my father studied acting. 
He was an actor, six foot six. My mother studied social work, became a social worker, true old school Sarah Lawrence liberals. When they graduated, my father became a professional actor and did one off-Broadway traveling show with Earl Jones, James Earl Jones' father. It's called The Little People. Then soon after that, he was an unemployed actor. And my mother was a social worker. They married three days after graduating college. And in four years, had the first of the, of the six kids, three kids. So they joined my mother's father's business. He was a Russian immigrant who had gone into the reptile business in New York. Reptile skins for shoes and handbags. And my parents took that business over, uh, over time. My father used his skills as a storyteller and actor. My mother used her innate ability with color and growing up in that business to uh, eventually take over the business called Fleming Joff. And they were dreamers. And my father was at Vogue or Bazaar someplace pitching his leathers. And he said, I need a graphic designer. And they said, the, the woman said, uh, Arthur, you know, you, you'll get this guy. He doesn't talk much, but I think you'll like him. And they brought this guy in who didn't say a word with white straight hair. And, and uh, my father said, oh, I like you. You're interesting. He says, yeah, my name is Andy Warhol. You know, it would be interesting. So my father said, okay, but I got to be home because all the kids, it's dinner time. So come home with me to the Brownstone. So he brought Andy Warhol to me, my mom. The kids were there. And again, he never spoke. And they gave him a project and they built this relationship. And Andy Warhol did all their graphic design. He painted the awning of their Fifth Avenue showroom. He painted the lights inside. He did everything. They were doing a, a chrome leather collection. He did the entire booth in Chrome, brought in a Harley and painted everything out. And they had this amazing kind of connection. It was a right time, right place thing. My parents knew enough to, to embrace this unknown yeah. and make the best of it. They went to Italy to buy leathers and they fell in love with a young designer named Piero Fornasetti. And my father said, you know, Fornasetti, this is your plates are amazing. You should come to New York. And he introduced him to the department store, I Magden. And, and, and that's where Fornasetti drew the eye for I Magden. And so the, the gifts every year for, for Fleming Joff were either an Andy Warhol coloring book or custom Fornicetti plates. And my father found Ogden Nash with Ogden Nash prose on the plates. They had a great success with this company, Fleming Joff. But reptiles, unfortunately, a little bit because of my parents, became endangered species, most of the ones they used. Samanda Queer was this fantastic week of leather in Paris. Mm -hmm. And my father knew this great shoe shop that had a, a store in the airport and I think two more stores in the best areas. And he went over and he met with the people there and gave them this snakeskin that he had too much of. They made shoes out of the snakeskins and put them in all the windows of the stores in Paris. So by the time Samantha Queer came in, there was this outrageous demand for the snakeskin from India that my folks were selling. And it got so feverish that they bought all the snakeskins they could buy from this area of India. Now, and they sold them. So unfortunately, those snakes ate the rats and kept them out of the crops and created a small issue <laughs> with a lack of rats. So, oh. which, you know, nobody knew about in those days. Right. But they disturbed the ecosystem. They disturbed the ecosystem with fashion shoes. Oh my gosh. I know. <laughs> to think of how often that's occurred and how many different industries. So then there was a demand for the look. And my parents created together the first embossed leathers to look like reptile called Corfan. And that was the biggest success in those days that they had had. Corfan became huge. It was it made for the first time affordable fashion that looked like snake, looked like crocodile and those kinds of things. And they, and they ended up selling that company to DuPont and having their first kind of big success. And this was a leather product? It was embossed leathers, hand rubbed usually, and then to look like reptiles or snakes. Okay. So it was a way to get the look without hurting the ecosystem. 
And my father, you know, after selling so much stuff to the, the shoe industry, said, I'm going to open up a shoe business. My brother Sam was then graduating from Sarah Lawrence, just like my father. And they went into the shoe business together in a company called Lighthouse Footwear. Sam was a day out of school. My father had never been in the shoe business. And at the same time, my mother took a job with Jack Larson, learning the fabric industry. And to my mother, always described Jack as the world's greatest weaver. You know, Cranbrook educated and icon. And he loved my mother. Long story short, in about, it took about 10 years. That company went down. It did, didn't last. They bought a shoe factory. They couldn't make, you know, they couldn't make the different kinds of shoes. And my mother said, this, there's this industry we haven't really worked with too much called the interior design industry. And no one's making fantastic leather for interior design. We should figure out how to do that and come back together and work as a couple like we work best. And in 1981, they sold their classic Mercedes and invented Edelman leather. Those years in the shoe business did a couple of things. They let my parents, my mother learn interior design. They let my oldest brother learn shoes, which, you know, he went on to a great career in shoes. I'm jumping around because my parents' story was interesting. It's fascinating and it sets the foundation because in 1981, you're... Ninth grade or so. I'm a teenager living on this farm in rural Connecticut with a parents that have been all over the world. And I really just this country kid, you know, learned driving tractors. And I bought my first car when I was 12 down the street. <laughs> uh, I, Were you a tinkerer? Yeah, you know, I'm super not mechanical, but I like buying and selling things. And I love And collecting, cars. maybe? I, I, yeah, who knew at that point? You know, I was a terrible student. At that time, I hadn't gone through a growth spurt. So I was made fun of as a kid for being fat, all those kinds of things. But down the street was another horse farm, and they had this old BMW out in the field. And so I rode my bike over, and I said to them, you know, that, that car's just sitting there. I, I think I could just take it away. And, and I think I tried to get them to pay me to take it away, a little Tom Sawyer stuff. But I gave them $25 for this old car. I knew it was a BMW. My middle brother, David, who was nine years older, came back over the tractor, hooked chains up to the car, and we towed it home. I'm not mechanical. So I tried to free the motor up and with oil and this and that. didn't work. So I <laughs> polished it, and that I could do. And I took this $25 heap in the field and cleaned it up and sold it for $600 in about a month. Wow. And so by the time I was 16, I probably had you know seven or eight cars that I was trading as a kid. You little hustler. Yeah, I was a hustler, man. And I... But I loved it. You know, I love cars. And so I got to like, if they ran, I got to run around the farm and have fun. And I never learned how to drive. I just kind of knew how to drive. I don't know how that happened. I guess the tractors and lawnmowers and weird cars and motorcycles. At the same time, I had a dirt bike. I wanted to be a stuntman. I practiced every single day to be a stuntman, doing wheelies for miles at a time, jumping over stuff, riding over rock walls and things that country kids do. I wasn't a city kid. Were you a natural daredevil? Like, did you like the thrill? Yeah, that I loved. I was really good. I wasn't an athlete at all, you know, so I didn't have success in school on those fronts, but I was a really good motorcycle rider. And that was my thing. And then it made my fun of me. I did two things. I rode motorcycles and I could throw Frisbee. And, and <laughs> as my wife, I can tell you later, but she said, you know, oh, Frisbee when we met. You play Ultimate? I'm like, no, I play Frisbee. That was my thing. You know, when my parents started the leather company in 81 in Danbury, Connecticut, I spent every summer working there, every Christmas break working there. I learned the value of what overtime meant. I, I tried to get as much overtime as I could, you know, that was incredible as an hourly employee. And I started like that. And, you know, it was different then. I finished high school. I could barely get through. I went to a private school nearby and I was a terrible student. I never believed that the kid who got an A learned any more than I learned getting a C. It just never made sense to me. And then when it came time for college, in those days, parents really weren't involved. I don't think I went on any college visit. My GPA was terrible. And the funny story is I was in summer school every year for failing or whatever. This one summer, I had failed French. 
and I was taking French to, to make up the credit in summer school. And I met this really cool guy in my class who was taking French to get ahead. And that was Peter Salik, actually, who I ended up working with for years at Waterworks. And now I'm on the board of Design Leadership Network that he runs. And he, he's always been such a leader and such an overachiever. But we made friends in 10th grade and stayed friends for all these years. So did your not being a good student, did that ever take a toll on your confidence? Or were you just kind of convinced, I'm learning just as much, I just don't need to do it with these rules and these protocols that are kind of arbitrary? I'm learning just as much. I sold you know, a Jeep pickup truck to my English teacher senior year and went to <laughs> London with the money with my girlfriend. I had a, a girlfriend <laughs> so who was five years older. Not only are you learning just as much, but you're kind of like, eh. I think I got the answers here. Yeah, like I don't know what these people are working so hard for. It doesn't seem that hard. But yeah. and I had a great exposure, you know. So I, I went. I had an older girlfriend, so I thought I was all that. Uh, I sold a car and went to London. And at the time, we I remember we saw cats in the round in London. I was like seventeen. But when, when it was time to go to college, I, I got rejected everywhere. Like I literally couldn't get into college. I was such a bad student. I had a friend at Manhattanville College, again a girls' school, which was kind of fun, and they got me in. I entered at the college. On probation, that's how bad of a student I was. I struggled. I didn't understand how to learn in school. I still don't really learn the same way as others. But what was great for me were the other things, you know. So my father had to go to Thailand to inspect water buffalo when I was a sophomore or something. It was going to be hot there, so he, and he, was, he, he was getting older. I said, oh, Pops, can I come help you? And I'll sort it. And so he said, yes. I went to Thailand with my dad and sorted buffalo skins in a tannery and 100 and five degree temperatures and had the best time of my life for my dad and, and learning leather. Yeah. Um, I spent one summer where I, I drove cross country and went to work for my brother at a spree. And this was a pretty big deal. My brother, Sam had started the shoe division for a spree and welcomed me to come spend the summer and work. So I spent 10 days working in the Esprit outlet store and then someone got sick or had to leave in customer service. And Sam's like, put John on there. It's, it's New York. He'll do it. And so with zero training, <laughs> I did customer service for the New York region for his free shoes for two and a half months and survived. But there was one key weekend where they were having a sales meeting and my brother brought in all these high powered shoe salesmen. I knew what they made. They made tons of money. They were all wearing like gaudy Armani and I knew what kind of cars they had. And they were high level shoe salesmen doing millions of dollars a year in sales. They had the meeting all weekend and I wasn't working. I spent every minute at every meeting with these guys. And on Monday, I took my brother aside and said, Sam, I've spent a couple days with these guys. I can do their jobs better than they can. When I graduate, can I work for you and do that? Because I want to make a lot of money. I can sell shoes. And over a period of time, he said, yes. I finished Manhattanville, nothing great. I forgot one thing. When I did graduate from high school, I was voted most likely to succeed by my peers. Even though I couldn't pass anything, there, there was something going on. Yeah. And it sounds like you never earned the black sheep narrative or the loser narrative in any way. No, I was friends with my teachers. I'd hang out with them, you know, and, and I had, I was socially popular or whatever. I had friends. I was super functional. I didn't hide in a corner. I was a class clown. I was doing deals. So, so it ended up, it was very positive. So again, I go to college. I struggle through college. I can barely pass French again. And Sam said I could work for him. So I graduated from college on a Saturday. No exaggeration, Sunday, I flew to Brazil to work in the shoe business. <laughs> like, Your life is so exciting already. I, <laughs> I, love, I love all these characters. I love your confidence. I love your hustler energy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. You know, I was very, very loved. When you're the baby of six by a lot and your parents are older, the rules are extremely relaxed. You're on your own, but you have that 
nurturing around you, not doting, but you have a confidence knowing that you have that many people that care about you. And that was a big deal for me without knowing. So I'm in the airport by myself in New York. I had been overseas alone, you know, during college one time to the south of France to, for summer school, which was a good scam I hooked up. But I go to the airport and I'd gone through some kind of customs clearing. And this little guy comes over to me, like he must have been five, two, five, three, in a very expensive Italian suit, looked like a mafioso. And he says with an accent, you know, are you John Edelman, Sam Edelman's brother? And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, give me your passport Am I and your ticket. And I did. You know, what do I know? He comes back in like 30 minutes. I'm sweating. I, I know I'm going to be in trouble, something terrible. And he gives me a taped up shoebox and he upgraded me to first class. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm bringing drugs. Yeah. I'm a dead man. I'm going, but, but then I thought to myself, you know, who brings drugs to Brazil? Uh, <laughs> but still, this is but also still, like mysterious. Oh it's so <laughs> mysterious. No one told me anything. There's no cell phones, right? 1988. And I'd never been to Brazil. So I, I, I take the box. I hand carry it on the airplane. And then when I arrive in Brazil, some guy meets me coming off the plane and walks me around customs. Whoa. And I'm like, here I am. Now, I, I, my brother's going to kill me. Now I'm a drug dealer. And uh, <laughs> it turned out they were, I was doing a favor for Nine West Shoe Company, pans ferrying a shoe last to Brazil. They had to get there quickly. It wasn't anything too scary, but it started off scary. But why would they have to walk that around customs? Because they could in those days. They, they wanted to make everything a VIP experience. I thought it was criminal, but it was, it was normal for the time. Man, the school of life is teaching you fast. <laughs> oh, real fast. I mean, this is my MBA starting now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. 
This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So I arrive in Brazil. I don't speak the language. We have an apartment down there. I'm allowed to go to the apartment, shower quickly. And then he's like, okay, we're going to the office. So you drive. So I jump in the car. He gives me directions to drive through these windy roads in the south of Brazil, Novo Hamburgo, New Hamburg, where the Brazilians are all blonde, as you can imagine, from Germany. We get to the office. And he goes, oh, I forgot my follow facts. Go get it. So he goes to the office. And I have no sense of direction. My life, still to this day, I've Stayed in hotel rooms every other week since 1988, and I still don't know which way the elevator is in the morning, ever. <laughs> and he's like, go back. So I have to navigate these streets of Brazil and find the way back to the apartment, find the stupid follow facts, and get back again. A little rough start between the airport and this, and no sleep. And what, what it turned out down there, Sam stayed for two days, and he left, and no one spoke English for the most part. You know, the guy who ran the office spoke English. But if I wanted to learn about stuff, I was down there to learn about shoemaking. And they quickly put me in charge of the sample room. Then I was able to go with the inspectors in the morning to the shoe factories, and then I became in charge of quality control. This is within three weeks of graduating college, right? But I learned one of my biggest things is I have an ear for languages. So from feeling poorly about always failing French, I learned conversational Portuguese by ear 
in six weeks and was fluent pretty soon. You know what that says to me is you're learning in the field, in relationships, in context. When it's abstracted and fed to you through books and rules, it just, it's too hard to focus. It doesn't matter. And it feels unconnected. Totally. And also I had a reason to learn. Like I wanted to be successful down there. And plus I had just finished college. Brazil was famous for beautiful women. And (laughs) we were in a great position. So I was the only American in the area, except for one guy of like hundreds of people that spoke the language. And so I could go out at night. I had a car. I had total freedom down there. Wow. That uh, sounds so fun. (laughs) It was so fun. It was the time of my life. So I was down in Brazil, between Brazil and New York, and the company was based in California. It was Sam and Libby then. For almost three months before I visited the corporate office in California and moved, Sam said, John, you know, you're a natural seller, so you're not allowed to sell for a while. You got to learn the business. So I came home from one of the trips and they hired this old school, we used to call them shoe dogs. And he's a legend. His name was Terry Anderson. And like we said, not the hostage. Terry was an interesting guy. He had survived Vietnam. So he had survivor's guilt and he was wound up, but he was a famous shoe salesman. And he said, John, go with Terry to go see J.C. Penney's. They need a factory guy just to back him up. And we're going to start a private label division. I go with Terry to J.C. Penney's. We do a presentation. We come back. Sam said, oh, the, the people from Penny's called. They loved it. The only thing they said was, sorry, Terry. They want John to manage the account. <gasps> so I went from the factory guy to the sales guy, and I started the private label division for Sam and Libby. Maybe that was a year after graduating college. And I turned J.C. Penny's from uh, zero volume with us to over $15 million in a year and started this great division uh, for, the, for the business. So I started with J.C. Penny's. There was a company called Mervyn's. I ended up putting the first shoes in the limited. We did a sandal collection. I cold called them. And then we moved the company to New York and Sam wanted to be in, in J. Crew. At this point, I understand how you've already sort of got a love of fine objects, but like, is your fashion sense really part of this as well? No. And to my brother's credit, he tortured me. So like I'd arrive to work and if my tie didn't match right, I'd literally be sent home. Okay. So your ability to sell sandals really didn't have to do with like knowing what was coming down the pike in terms of fashion? Well, I was told. So Sam said, you know, we had, we had presentations and, you know, in, in the vein of my father, you know, fashion's about storytelling. So I knew and I eventually went to Saint-Tropez and shopped sandals in Saint-Tropez eventually, right? And I knew it, but I could tell the story that the, the team just got back from Saint-Tropez and the Tropeziens are, are happening all over Europe and, and this kind of strap is better and la, la, la. And I could tell all those stories. So I, you know, fake it till you make it. And eventually I ended up learning all that. My mother had been fashion director of shoes for Macy's as a random job to support Edelman Leather in the early days. So she worked directly for Ed Finkelstein, who was the chairman. And she ran fashion direction for shoes. We had, a, we had it in the family. We, my father was in fashion of the times. Yeah, it's in, it's in your DNA. It's in your osmosis. And you're only one phone call away from like somebody who's already in it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And these, these shoe salesmen didn't know anything, right? They were just programmed. So I was able to learn that stuff. You know, $15 million in shoes at retail for 1999 is a lot of shoes. I think I sold 1.3 million pair in one year, one time. So it was pretty amazing. Oh man. Think of the ecosystems you're disrupting. <laughs> <laughs> well, people have to wear shoes. Yes, it's true. Right. And I opened up J crew and I opened up uh, the limited and, and all these kinds of things. I was lucky enough. My brother always gave me huge opportunity. So during that time in California, I also met a young guy named John McPhee, who invited me to dinner, maybe a year in. He had joined a little later. Went to dinner, and he, he, he brought his wife. You know, he was a couple years older, like three or four years older than me. 
and their newborn baby, Anna. And they put Anna in the basket under the table. We had this amazing dinner and became friends. I had no idea that he'd be my best friend today uh, from then. But we track our friendship by how old Anna is because, you know, she was at the table, uh, you know, weeks old when we met. Anna's 30. Anna's our measuring stick. And then we moved the company to New York. And for a period of time, we'd just gone public. And Sam kind of stayed off in California for a while. And John and I were on our own. I can't remember all the details as of to why. But we stepped in and kind of ran Sam and Libby for a few months. We didn't plan it. And we didn't rehearse it. But we did it. And it was like magic. It just worked. We had different strengths. We we could go about things from different directions, but come to the same conclusion. We had the guts to question each other. We didn't want to do each other's jobs. And we knew at that point that we would be a team, you know, forever. During that time, after New York, my parents had Edelman Leather. It was a tiny business. It was always struggling. My brother David worked there for a while. My sister Mary was working there. It was tiny. My father had been asking me almost every day to come back and work in Edelman Leather. I never wanted to do that right after school because you don't know anything. And then all you end up knowing is how they teach you. So you don't bring value. And so I always tell people with family businesses, it's great to have your kids come in, but send them away for a while. Let them work somewhere else. So they have a value when they come in that can challenge you from a different perspective. And Sam had given me this amazing opportunity. I traveled the world. I was selling. I was production you know, international. And so I thought I had something to bring in. On my dad's 70th birthday, he had a heart attack at the house, which scared the daylights out of my family, right? If you imagine six, six foot people crying hysterically at Yale New Haven, and he was fine. He ended up being fine. In typical Arthur fashion, they put a stent in. He goes, I feel wonderful now. I feel so much better. You know, he came out a day later, like, you know, <laughs> dancing for the most part. I love he never danced, but, but uh, feeling great. And when he, after that heart attack, I said, okay, you know, I don't, I don't own any of the shoe business. Let's go back and let's do something that, that is the best of the best. And I joined Edelman Leather. Just before that, I had met my wife, my future wife. Uh, she was uh, working at Seventeen Magazine as an assistant editor, basically her first job. And my brother Sam was friends with the fashion director and met her at a shoot and set us up on a blind date. I had never met a girl six foot two. <laughs> she was a New York City girl. And I certainly was loving being single. And you meet somebody at the right time and, and, and things change. And we fell in love. Aww. And she had encouraged me to join the family business, Edelman Leather. She had said, you know, they're making the best quality in the world. You don't own this business, blah, blah. So I listened to her and, and joined Edelman Leather. So what I love about this story is two really powerful partnerships kind of came into your life in the last few minutes of the story. <laughs> and it's pretty cool. And without them... I would not be where I am today. Like 100% would be drifting, I think. So Bonnie went from 17 to Glamour, and then she ended up being one of two people running Sports Illustrated Swimsuit. Wow. She was the assistant to the editor, and there was really only two people. And she, at that time, was lucky enough to discover Heidi Klum from a tiny picture in the back of Victoria's Secret and got Heidi Klum in that first Sports Illustrated. And if you watch the Heidi Klum VH1 behind the whatever, like Bonnie's interviewed through half the thing. She actually gets credit for it, which is nice. And Heidi Klum became our good friend. Came to our wedding in Connecticut. We got married, you know, a year in Tattleman Leather, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a, a fun mixture of people and, and, and of the time. So I'm at Edelman Leather. I told my parents and my sister when I came in, let's not come in, but I need ownership. And I want to learn this, but I think we can all make money. We have to make equal and 
I had to learn a little bit. So I knew leather because I had sorted hides half my life. But I didn't know furniture, which we sold for, right? Edelman Leather, we sold hides mm-hmm. to go on furniture. You know, I was calling on Gensler without knowing stuff. My parents had a great friend named Dr. Alvin Friedman Keen. And he was one of the world's leading dermatologists. He discovered the skin sarcoma that is AIDS. He was on the President's Council for AIDS, and he was a gay advocate. Phenomenal man. He was, became a mentor to me. And he was a collector, a real collector, from decoys, you know, duck decoys, to narville tusks, to old masters' paintings, to, to sculpture, whatever. He knew everything. But his passion was the 26th Street flea market. My wife and I, you know, we just met, and I was moving to the new industry, we started going with him early on Sunday mornings to the flea market and meeting all those crazy vendors. I fell in love with modern furniture. Let's call it mid-90s. Of all the stuff at the flea market, Bai and I learned that we had a shared aesthetic. We fell in love over that to the next level. I started collecting modern. So I was working in Connecticut at Edelman Leather. We had an empty warehouse in the back. And I started filling it with collections of Saarinen executive chairs, Time Life chairs were my favorite thing in the whole world. Haywood Wakefield at the time was hot, and I bought too much. And I filled up an entire warehouse with my obsessive collecting. Mm. But I learned about the background of every designer, about Cranbrook, about the Royal Danish Academy, about Saarinen and Eames and, and, and all the different stories. I became an expert. Really never could have learned that in school. But when I called on Gensler and they said they needed the right texture for a Barcelona chair, I knew what they were talking about. And if you think about all those great design firms, at the time, they're putting some of the iconic modern pieces on every job. And I became a person that they could speak to about that. The company is growing okay. I'm four years in, and I come to the family with a plan. I said, it's taken me four years to learn this, and I think we should do this. My mother and father said, that's great. My sister didn't agree, so I ended up having to buy her out of the business, unfortunately, which was, you know, I love my sister to death, and she was one of the great sellers of all time, but she didn't want to do this plan. And it was okay. You know, she ended up having a great life. So I had to buy her out of the business. Sam and Libby had closed and John McPhee was working for Candies. And I said, John, we're going to work together again. Your worst day in the leather business can be better than your best day in the shoe business. Let's work together. And he believed me. And I didn't want him to be an employee. We need to be partners. So I worked with my mom and dad. We gave him a discount to buy and he bought into the family business. Very few people can bring someone into a family business. My father was always like, what's he going to do? Like, well, he, he does all the stuff that, you know, we're not good at. So John McPhee joined. We were doing somewhere around six and a half, seven million dollars a year. And I told him the plan, right? We need to get rid of all multi-line sales reps. We need to create our own sales force to tell the story. And we can be the only leather company in existence that takes care of every aspect of a certain client's life. We can do the headboard they wake up in bed on. We can do their breakfast room in their house, the leather for their private jet when they fly to work, the corporate interior when they get there, the Le Cirque when they have dinner there, and then the Four Seasons when they go to bed, we'll have our leather as well. We can be all four parts of the industry and not just one. So if you think about it, Spinnebeck was contract, Townsend was aircraft, Cortina and many others were hospitality, and there was a million other people doing a million different things, but no one had focused on the lifestyle of that consumer of the best. And Edmund Leather is and was the best leather in the world. And, and I was able to say that with confidence. And we did it. And we grew the company from somewhere around $7 million to $70 million in those ensuing eight years. So you can imagine, I traveled all the time. 
my father was creating new product for us with great romantic stories. My mother was a colorist and she was amazing. But, you know, their health was deteriorating quick. So almost within the first year of McPhee joining, my dad lost his leg in an accident on the farm while we were at Neocon. Oh my and my mother had consecutive back operations. So again, without really planning it, the two of us were running a business. That's how that real growth happened. We got graded into Herman Miller. We were the first leather company ever to get graded into Herman Miller. I had to present to Eames Demetrius at the case study house in Southern California to get his approval. Can you imagine? I just started collecting. It's my favorite thing in the whole world. I get to go to the case study house and present <laughs> to Eames Demetrius. And I'll never forget, he left me alone in the kitchen of the case study house. And he left me for a while, and I got bored. And I was about to clear the table off to throw leather on it. He goes, no, 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 no. No one's touched that for 50 years. Oh, okay, my God. Move away from the table. So he took me outside, <laughs> and I ended up presenting to Eames Demetrius and his whole staff on the lawn. Then he gave us the blessing, and I went to Miller and presented there with his blessing and ended up getting graded in. It was truly the collecting, the, the, the one of those patterns that brought us to Miller, and it worked. We got every NetJet airplane. We established a relationship with this company I'm with now called Krypton and got the exclusive rights to Krypton for leather and got standardized at Starboard Hotels, NetJets, everywhere that needed a little bit of cleanability. We were able to leverage that and really do well. I mentioned that I learned Portuguese in Brazil. The company was based in New Milford, Connecticut. There were 25,000 Brazilians living in the neighboring town. I sponsored 11 Brazilians to work in the warehouse and grow to other jobs at Edelman Leather. And so when I was sorting hides every day, which even as I was president of the company, I sorted hides for a period every day, I'd speak Portuguese and practice with the Brazilians. They would practice English and I would speak Portuguese. And they were all telling me how they were buying these expensive homes. I'm like, guys, I don't know how you can do that. I know what you make. And oh, there's these new mortgages. You know, and I said, oh my God, when do they do? They're like, in a year. I called a family meeting, John McPhee, my mother and father and me. And they said, guys, we're going to have a financial collapse. And my parents were getting older and needed a lot of care at the house. Very, very expensive. And I didn't know we could afford that if we didn't do something. And we literally started a sale process. So wait, what you're telling me is through speaking Portuguese and having an ear to the ground with your Brazilian workers, you anticipated the financial collapse and prepared to sell the business before that happened? Yes. Holy shit. I know. And I'm not that smart. That was pure luck. If I was that smart, I would have shorted the stock market or done something even more intelligent. But we started the process, and, and my mom and dad and McPhee believed me. Who does that? John McPhee, you know, my best friend, he, he lived in Darien, Connecticut, and he had a little mafia on his street of the right financial guys. Peter Salik, who I was friends with from 10th grade, had invited me a year earlier to join YPO, Young President's Organization, which I did. Changed my life because I was able to meet all these great entrepreneurs, and they helped guide this process along with McVee's mafia of hiring a great investment bank, a phenomenal lawyer, and not just selling quickly, but going through the whole process, which we did. We ended up selling the company. I always thought it would sell to Miller, but it sold to Noel. And Noel bought our company. We closed on the deal October 1st, 2007, which was literally within weeks of the peak of the, of the, of the economy. And then we stayed on and managed that business for two years for Noel before moving on. Yeah, everything is interconnected. Collecting 26th Street flea market, learning Portuguese, finding a good partner, you know, a wife that encourages you to do the right things that, you know, all those things kind of led to a, a moment, right? And, and that really worked. My parents had never had money in the bank, or they lived like kings. I'd always spent more than I made. So we all made our first hit. It was nice to have money. My wife had discovered that she was a photographer. You know, she was in the fashion business, all those kinds of things, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit, but never had developed her own art. 
we're out in the country. Like I travel all the time and strand her in this farm on this farm, a New York City girl. And so she was angry at me for that a lot. But she did discover that she was a great photographer. And my mother said, Bonnie, forget all these other things, you know, the magazines, do photography. You're amazing. And she did and developed a series at that time of, of uh, Uruguayan horses. And that's another long story, but an amazing horse series. And so I said, Bonnie, you know, when we sell Edelman Leather, I'll have time and I'll be more around the family and I'll help you develop your photography business. We published a book and she was like so happy. Finally, I was going to pay attention and do the right thing. We sold the business. We're ending the two-year relationship. Noel says they don't want to hire us, whatever. McPhee and I take a meeting with a friend of mine. You know, we're a management team. We can do this and that. And he says, do you ever hear of this company called Design Within Reach? Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, I love Design Within Reach. You know, I'm a modern furniture collector and they sell modern. And I go in there and I, I talked to the salespeople and I tried to get graded in through Herman Miller. And I had all this strength. I love that company. He goes, well, a friend of mine just acquired them and you should meet him. I'm like, okay, that sounds cool. A couple weeks go by. I don't hear from them. I call up my friend, Billy. I'm Billy, I'm, oh my God, I can't believe you called me. You got to be in New York tomorrow morning, nine o'clock. Meet with this guy, Glenn Kravitz. You got to go in the city. You know, they, they be, okay, okay, that's cool. As we go in the city, meet with Glenn Kreblin. He is a uh, an investor who, who ended up owning Design Within Reach. Long story, by chance, in many ways. And a second meeting I had with him on a Saturday, I took him to the Edelman Leather showroom. Then we took a taxi on restoration hardware and the flat iron. He had owned Resto before. And explained to him what McVie and I thought we could do to design within reach to, to save the business. It was in a terrible situation. It was kind of in a death spiral then, right? It was a death spiral. It was doing $120 million a year, losing $25 million a year, layoffs, knockoffs, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I, and I told him what we wanted to do. And he said, cool, I, I believe in this. And you know, we had known retail from the shoe business. We knew interior design from the leather business. John had been a retailer with his parents at Jumping Jack's. And we were not the perfect fit for what had to be done, but it seemed like we were a perfect fit. Rather than taking six months off and being a better father and husband and supporting my wife's photography business, McPhee and I took six days off. There was a New York Times article that I took the job uh, during those six days when we were in Mexico saying John Edelman, new CEO of Design Reach, big article, <laughs> a huge picture of Alan Heller because he had sued everybody over knockoffs. And we started commuting to San Francisco every week for eight months. And I abandoned the family and did the worst thing I ever did. In all honesty, it's, it's not even funny. No one should ever do that. You know, especially after you promise to be home more, the family, I, I had to survive and, and, and earn my way back into the good graces of my wife and children after that. I want to thank you for sharing that because, you know, you were sort of joking and apologizing, but I think it's very helpful for people to hear some of the tolls it can take on the fullness of life when you give yourself over to something. I mean, it leads me to today, eventually, but you can't do that. And no one ever says on their deathbed, oh, gee, I wish I'd worked more overtime or, or skip more birthdays or those kinds of things. And it's not healthy. We were still living on the farm. So I was traveling every week and she was out there in the middle of nowhere. And I realize now how much work goes into two kids every day and just the management, try to have your own life. And then you're lonely out there. That was a bad time that I, w I would not do again. Right. And I use those parameters now in guiding my future. You know, what, what's, what's my priority? What's good for me and what's good for the family. And, and, and mostly what's good for the family. Honestly, we commute to California for eight months. My daughter would make me wake her up at 4 AM Monday morning before I left and kiss her goodbye while she was crying like Aww. every Monday. Terrible. 
Uh, yeah, you so, abandoned her uh, every yeah, week. <laughs> yeah, every week was the same thing. My beautiful little girl. So who's 20 now and still, you know, gives me shit about it. But we learned this business and we just start making decisions. Oh, and by the way, we invested alongside Glenn and owned the business with him, which was the key. Yeah, it's all in. All in. So they're doing knockoffs. There's no one running the company. They had laid off all kinds of people and not even kind of kept track of what jobs they did. Oh. They had killed the catalog. The website was seven versions behind the e-commerce site. And we were doing very little product development. And we had a demoralized staff. Oh, dear. So we start January 4th, 2010. And we have to walk out there and introduce ourselves. We call a company meeting. And I still, to this day, I do run hot and I'll sweat in certain public presentations, which is fine. I've lived through it. I survive it. Uh, and I've been successful. So I can, I'm okay with it. But I do. People think, oh, you okay? Yeah, I'm just, I run hot, man. It's okay. <laughs> so I go out there and everybody looks at us with just disapproval. I'm not used to that. You know, no one believed in us yet. They've been screwed over. And we have to win these people over and we tell them the pl- some of the plan and we just go to work. The, the office is in a skyscraper, like overlooking the city and the CEO's office is in the corner, black with an alley. <laughs> all the views were with IT and they had covered all the windows with whiteboards, right? So it was just this weird place. Design was on the other side of the building from my office, which I couldn't take. And McPhee and I just start making decisions. There were 72 stores, 35 of which lost money. Those 35 were the last 35 they opened within two years. We had a board in the office that listed all the stores, the ones that lost the most money down to the ones that made the most money. And we said, okay, we have to close these stores. We closed stores without even going to visit them. We were hemorrhaging. We had to save this business. Unlike many retailers who work with malls and such, they may have 50 stores, but they they probably have two landlords. We were mom and pop. So every single store had a different landlord. And McPhee had to go and negotiate a deal with every single one of them to close those stores. Uh, Wow. On the design side, we had to get rid of all knockoffs. And we did that within a month. We dumped them all through the outlet store and took them all off the website and the catalog. And Alan Heller became a good friend. You got to save your soul with that, too, because knockoffs, that's not how you're going to build a brand with any sort of integrity. You can't be half pregnant, my mother always said. (laughs) So either you're the world leader on authentic modern design mm-hmm. or you're not. And I preach this to this day. If one knockoff in the mix, you're, you're done. I'm also well, was the president of Be Original Americas and now the ambassador. Things come full circle, right? So I really believe in that cause. And that saved the business. So we closed the stores. We brought back the catalog. We updated the website. This is over a period of time. About six months in, we hold a company meeting and said, listen, people, we've had a good six months. We're on the right track but we're moving the company to Connecticut. And, you know, I'm like tearing when I tell these people, right? These people that love the business. Oh, one more important thing. We asked every current employee when we first got there, what was broken? Oh, that's key. And took all those reports and used that as part of our guideline as well. They knew. They wanted to do the right thing and they weren't allowed to. They didn't want to do knockoffs. They were forced to. And we used that as part of our guideline to how to fix the business. We had this meeting and we're going to move the company to Connecticut. Anybody who would like to come with us, you are welcome. We don't have any money. As an example of not having any money, all the travel the company did for those first two years were on my Starwood points. We paid every bill with my Starwood Amex and used that so we could afford travel because we had no money for travel. So we did trade shows and the regional managers would do all their visits all on my Starwood points. Wow. Like we, <laughs> it was so funny. I ended up being a Starwood ambassador because we used so many rooms. They thought I was traveling myself, you know, 300 nights a year. <laughs> but we played every trick to save that business. We had this amazing meeting to tell people we're moving. 
we said, we don't have any money to give you big bonuses for moving, but what we suggest you do is, since most of your furniture is designed within reach, most of you are single and don't have kids or married with no kids, sell all your furniture. It's all modern classics. You can make some money. We'll give you 80 off at the outlet store to buy new furniture in the East Coast, and we'll pay like 1500 bucks for your move, which is not an appealing package. To this day, one of the things that makes me the most emotional when I tell the story is 50% of our employees move with us. Wow. You know, that's a big deal. They came out with like U-Haul or they just flew <laughs> and they started new lives in Brooklyn and New York and Connecticut and they believed. And then we went to Stanford, Connecticut. John McPhee and I were shopping for real estate, a place to go. And a guy from YPO, again, back to Peter Salik, longtime friend, put me in YPO. A guy from YPO had got the rights to this development district in Stanford, Connecticut. We wanted to have a place in Connecticut, but close to a train station so that people from New York could make it there easily. So within walking distance to the Stanford's train station was this amazing old brick warehouse. It was the former Yale Lock Factory. And we saw it and it had survived like a few fires. So it was completely burnt out, no windows, but this very beautiful rectangular classic brick structure. I'm such an idiot. I'm like, I love it. And <laughs> he's like, shh, shh. And our friend of ours, a guy named Carl Keener, gave us free rent across the street and built out the brick building for us. And we moved everybody into this cool brick, former Yale Lock factory in Stanford, Connecticut, and, and restarted the business. And in, in, in that place, the average size of a, of a design within reach store when we bought the company had, was around 1,500 square feet. It's very hard to show people how to live with modern mm-hmm. bedroom, living room, home office, etc. In 1,500 square feet. So we built our first store in that building that we had, desi- had designed in what we thought was huge, which was 6,000 feet. And we used that as the model to go from. And it worked. We started hiring designers from all over the world, like Norm Architects and David Weeks, who I'm a, a huge fan of. He's so talented. So we, we hired designers from all over the world. We moved to a bigger format. We started doing more, what, we, what you call private label, but we never called it that. It was the Norm Lounge Chair. It was the Jeffrey Burnett recline or whatever it was. We never said it was private label. It was always telling the story of the designer first, telling a repeatable, memorable story about the designer, and then telling the details about the furniture. And that was a huge change. Yeah. You put the human before the product. And I think that's huge. Yes. And the designers needed the exposure. Because if you think back to the days when Charles and Ray Eames won the design contest at the MoMA, and the key to winning that was Bloomingdale's would be the retailer and Herman Miller would be the manufacturer. There was nobody filling that role anymore. So Design Reach filled it. And we gave people these great opportunities, you know, Egg Collective. You know, they were known in the couture market. We made them known as a household name. And you can go through the list of designers we worked with them, you know, between Cleaner Atlason to, to, to whomever. We changed their lives because we mailed a million catalogs a month and told their stories. So designers wanted to work with us, which, you know, I went from Philip Stark ditching me in Milan to being invited to every cocktail party that he was at. You know, Milan year one, 2010, we weren't invited to a dinner. We had no money. We had to beg all of our vendors to come back to us. You know, the top 10 vendors left us, Casina, Muto, everybody had left us. So we had 40 meetings in that first Milan week, the first time I've ever been to the, the Salone, to beg everybody to come back and work with us. What we learned in that first week was no one had more than three stores that did authentic modern. So they actually needed us. And we learned the power that we had if we used it properly in the industry and, and got them all back. That was really exciting. So we're in Connecticut. We, we opened up the flagship on 57th Street. We had a, had a, an Edelman Leather showroom for 20-something years in the D&D. 
I knew the value of that little area, probably the most important design area on the planet in terms of doing business, you know, the, the, the D&D building in New York. And we were walking by, John McPhee was walking by a, a dig on 57th and 3rd that was going to be a building. And we contacted the people that were doing it and got that amazing flagship on 57th and 3rd to prove out our concept of the bigger stores that we started in Stanford. And at that time, Glenn Crevlin, who was our investor, our partner, it was time for him to kind of roll out of the fund. And so we started a sale process then. So we had taken the company from 110 or 20 million, losing 25 million, to 225 million, making 25 million. And we started another roadshow sales process. We showed it to all the big players. And there was a, a man named Brian Walker, who had been the CEO of Herman Miller, just a great guy. And from every Monday of Neocon, since we bought the company, Brian had taken us out to lunch, left that insane showroom, probably 25,000 people a day in his showroom. And he would take us to lunch and never look at his watch and never look at his phone for the lunch to understand how we were doing design within reach, how was the progress, because, you know, we were a huge retailer of our Miller product and really their face to the consumer. If you think about it, how else would you buy Miller for the most part? Right. Because they're a contract. Exactly. And at, at the end of the, the sales process, Brian Walker and Herm Miller bought design within reach. It was a big deal. It was a really big deal. I remember that. It, it was a really big deal. And I kind of have a question about you personally. Like, as you're preparing this business that you've nurtured into thriving for sale, is that a thrill for you? Is that like riding a motorcycle or is that bittersweet? Well, the sale process is like riding a motorcycle as fast as you possibly can with no helmet. Okay. <laughs> it's so intense. You have to get your rhythm. I always tell the story that we were in LA with the bankers, you know, part of the roadshow, doing these huge investment companies that own J. Crew, The Gap, they own Starbucks, you know, all these big firms that had huge investments. The first night we get there, we use a discount code to stay at the Four Seasons on Doheny for like 200 bucks a night. We're always trying to save. I love cars. And, and, and for some reason, I have this thing for minivans. So I'm driving us around in a minivan. And we go to the first presentation, and there is no energy. We're duds. And that's not like us. John McPhee and I have never had a dud presentation. So we all go back to the hotel. I'm like, guys, I'll see you in a little while. I take my minivan, minivan out to a Porsche dealership because they had a 96 911 for sale. And I go by myself. The, he stays open to wait for me. We have fun. He, he ends up selling me a different car, which I still have. And I, I did that to like just get some energy. And the next morning we get up and I'm like, we're following the investment bankers to the first presentation. And, and again, we're like, I feel duddy. And so every stop sign... They're in front of us. I hit the back of their car with my van. And then on the third stop sign, I hit the car and I kind of push them through the red light. And by the by the time we get to the place, right, everybody is loose. We're dying laughing. And we end up having like an amazing day of presentations. You know, I, I had the Porsche in the back of my mind. I had my best friend next to me in the car. We're just fucking around to a certain extent. Because it, it, your future depends on a process going well when you sell a company. The numbers are very big. And you've worked tirelessly to get there and you have people that depend upon you and you need to do a good deal. But it ended up being Herm Miller. They, they really made the best offer. They're the people I wanted to sell to. I had actually wanted to sell Edelman Leather to them years ago and it worked out. We became the retail arm of Herman Miller uh, under under Brian Walker. And that was a thrill. So we, then we created a, a separate entity that they gave us, uh, HermanMiller.com. We rolled it together. McPhee and I rolled over a, a, a very large portion of our proceeds into this new uh, Holdco company with Miller. And we got to grow Design Within Reach and Hermit.com for the next five years alongside them with the time to exit at the end. And we did it. It was really, really, really hard. Retail is hard. Furniture is hard. Delivering furniture to someone's house is hard. 
seven days a week with being ready to, to have a flooding store here or a, a sick salesperson there or whatever it was going to be. It, w- it was a real aggressive 10 years. And those last couple were just the pinnacles. Because we also were always growing. You know? so, so it was great. We bought hay during that time. Right. Uh, which, was, which was exciting. And, and really McPhee handled that. If we both were, were putting too much energy somewhere, someplace else would suffer. So we were able to divide and conquer. And that ended up being a great acquisition and all that. So, and John McPhee stayed on a little longer. But we sold the business this final time. I, I'm going to take some time off. And I did. This time I did it. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that part of the story. I know, because I'm exhausted just telling you the story. To <laughs> <Yeah. the truth. laughs> I need some time off. <laughs> imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. And you know, during that time, just, just as, as an aside, we talked about, I have a passion for collecting. And I started collecting watches probably at the end of high school. And then as I had more, you know, more money, I, I got nicer watches and really tuned in the collection. Every day on the way to work, I, for about six months, every week, I put on a different watch from the collection and photograph it as I was driving to work and post it on Instagram and put hashtag Hodinky. Hodinky is a watch guy's watch guy's blog. And now it's a website. I, I have a small investment with them that do all kinds of things. They were the authority on watches and I wanted them to notice me and talk about my watches. <laughs> <laughs> and I could have called somebody who knew somebody and met them, but I really wanted to do it organically. And they did, they, they reached out to me and we did this amazing video where they came to the house called talking watches. And I got to have the, the authority on watches, like give me the stamp of approval on something that I did as a hobby. I know it sounds uh, shallow, but it, it really, it really meant a lot to me. And I'm not exaggerating. I'd be in Milan with McPhee and some other people, and people come to the table, hey, hey I watched your video. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> people who love watches saw the video. The, the one before me was John Mayer, and the one after me was Jack Nicholas. So I was in great company, and I ended up falling in love with Hodinkee and, and having that. This is, I think it was, it's important 
to, to have other hobbies because you can't be a furniture collector when you're in a furniture business. You have to switch. And I did. I switched to watches, and it, it was recognized. It was, it was quite nice. So June 1st, 2019, my phone stopped. You know, I, I stopped working at Design Within Reach and Herman Miller. Overnight, I went from seven days a week, full speed, aggressive every single second, to crickets. What's that like? It's a shock to the system. Well, yeah, because your body doesn't stop creating all that energy. Usually, I get to work. I get to work with like the marketing department, and then product, and then we have an account, like whatever it's going to be. Like I'm emitting leadership energy. I'm like out there. I'm the guy, right? With uh, alongside McPhee, but I was I had the the, the front man role. Then I wake up, summertime, and I, there's no messages on my phone and stuff. And I have all this energy, like, bursting out of me. And so I didn't know how – I wasn't prepared. I started exercising, you know, walking five miles a day on these, you know, hilly roads. and It can be a really sort of disconcerting feeling to have undirected energy. It's not good. No. <laughs> yeah. And- <laughs> Thank gosh you didn't have any, like – Hostile inclinations, or else I guess you know, I'm not an angry person, so I'm not you know I'm a happy drunk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So, I just yeah. get real lovey. Like, <laughs> I get lovey so too. Great. I get oh, I love you. I, two drinks. I'm like to my wife, but you're so yeah. beautiful. You know? <laughs> so yeah, so I drank a lot, right? Because it's like just to end the day. My parents, my father was still alive, and then he passed during that time. I was able to spend time with the family and meditated. You know, I, I, I retrained in, in in transcendental meditation. And I said no to everything. Now, now most of it I had non-compete. I had to. But we were building a house in Westport, Connecticut. We were moving. So we were renovating. It was a gut renovation with an addition. So that kept my attention. I refocused on collecting. I did some car stuff. But I got smarter. I was able to let my brain think clearly for the first time in my adult life. It had been a roller coaster. An exciting, fantastic, wouldn't change a thing roller coaster. Except for the abandoning the family. But <laughs> but, uh, but uh, in general, like it, it was great. But... I never had time to think without the weight of the world on my shoulders for whatever business I was in. And I was able to look at other people's businesses and analyze them. And I did a little consulting and I started evolving. Be Original America kept me involved in the design world. Diffa kept me involved in the design world and, and my passion for Diffa. I actually, at that time, I did it before the move. We did a, a an auction of a warehouse full of my collections. And we raised like $80,000 for Diffa, which was great. And then we moved January 4th and then COVID hit two months later. And thank God that, you know, we, we moved, I learned how to boat. And I was still using my time, right? So I, I got to come on the water. I learned how to, I'd never been on a boat in the sound that scared the hell out of me. So I learned how to do that and family time and everybody's home because it's COVID. And I would find like on a rainy day, I'm like, uh, I should be doing something, right? I, I really should be doing something. So we made an interesting investment in Washington state in, in a marijuana business, which I never would have been able to do when I was working because we went out there and. It's like three hours from any place, and we toured the facility and all this kind of stuff. And I've been a, a small advisor there. My friends were doing a beauty business, and we got to, I got to study that and invest in this beauty business, which is a great product, which we'll have in a year or so. And then I had one of the last lunches I had, and I, I don't know if I can talk about the TV show, but I had lunch with these two women that I, I just adore and respect. And they were asking me to be a judge at a design contest they're going to run in Brooklyn. And they told me the whole story about it. I'm like, wow, I'll be a judge. But I really think it's a great TV show. Let's make a TV show. And they said, yeah. <laughs> so we formed a little entity. I hired my niece to help us build a, formalize the idea a little bit. And I think Heidi Klum from that last relationship will be the executive producer of the show. Well, and we'll see what happens. So I think we have a good chance of that show happening because of Heidi and, and it's a good concept. 
Wow. So, so that was one project. As someone with a background in the TV industry and design, I am very interested in this. I hope you will keep me posted. I will. And then I got contacted by Craig Rubin, who was the founder of, with his wife, Randy, of Krypton Fabrics. Years ago, I had the exclusive for them in leather, and they had been sold to private equity. You know, they weren't doing as well as they thought they could. And then and COVID hit, which, you know, hurt the contract markets. And the, and the private equity company, uh, along with the Rubin, said, would you come in as chairman and just work with the CEO and, and help execute the vision? And uh, I did. That was the first thing I, I had said yes to. So I became executive chairman of Krypton, which is a cool, I call it a part-time job. And it makes it, there's a great management team, so it makes it easy. I'm here in Michigan today uh, working with them. And it keeps me, again, a, a large, my size 13 foot inside the design industry. <laughs> and then... I met <laughs> randomly this amazing young guy and, and his friend. This young guy's father had owned, uh, still owns a bar in the East Village called the Boiler Room. And the Boiler Room has been an iconic gay bar for more than 30 years, always owned by this guy. And his son watched this kind of loyal clientele, so like me, sorting hides. He would clean glasses or you know work whatever in the bar. He always had exposure. And he said to his dad, you know, we, we've been watching these nice people come in. We have regular customers for 20 years. Once a year, all these brands jump on a bandwagon and do Pride Month and give something to, to the people to keep them happy and then leave. Why don't we start a brand that gives back all year long to this oh, community? I like right? this. Yeah. They went to their neighbor. The neighbor is an amazing guy who was a serial entrepreneur, a real estate developer, but also a graphic designer. And he helped them formalize this idea into a brand. The brand called Fourth and Pride. The bar's on Fourth and Second. Every city has the address Fourth and Pride, and everybody is proud of something. So it was a genius concept. They brought in a beer called Fourth and Pride. Within three weeks, 85% of beer sales were Fourth and Pride, and they had something. So that's when I meet them. I meet them, and I'm like, guys, I've been on the board of DIFA for I don't know how many years. I've been a, a supporter of the gay community forever through all different types of methods. I like to join your company. And we decided to to ditch the beer for a period of time and use the brand Fourth and Pride, which can be used for other things going forward, maybe even, a, I think, a marijuana license soon. And let's do a vodka. And we worked during COVID. We developed what I believe is the, the smoothest vodka in the world. Well, I can attest to that. It is. Oh, yay. I don't want to mess with it. Like, I just like it neat. So I didn't understand why if you bought an 18-year-old Macallan or a, a, a Classe Azul tequila, that you drink it on the rocks and you were proud of it. Why does everybody have to mix the vodka? So we thought, you know, having a mission is great, but a mission without a phenomenal product is kind of hollow. So we, we decided to start to make the smoothest vodka ever that didn't have to mix. Of course you can mix it, whatever. But in terms of what we call a naked martini, which is cold glass, cold vodka, mm -hmm. nothing compares. <laughs> and we had to work on the formula for months. And we mixed for the first time corn and grape. A brand like Chirac is grape. A brand like Tito's and most other vodkas are corn. But Chirac is, to me, is too sweet. And the other ones always have this weird bite at the end. Because when it's just corn, they have to add some kind of sugar. And the sugar is what gives you a hangover and provides that kind of weird aftertaste and bite. So we sweetened it with distilled grape. So that, you know, you have a, a, just a, a hint of a bouquet when you raise it to your, to your nose. Mm -hmm. You have a, a creamy mouth when you have it because it's smooth. And then there's no shock at the end because it's rounded with the grape rather than sugar. And we did it. Like, we did it. Guys that had never done this before, you know, three guys trying to do something, we actually made, I think, the smoothest vodka. And everybody who tastes it 
says, you know, I, I'm a scotch drinker, but I love this. Or I drink tequila, but I like this. Or I usually drink vodka tonic, but I, this is the first one I can drink straight. Well, I'm a mezcal person, and I was always like, yeah, vodka just either tastes like rubbing alcohol or nothing. But you've changed my mind with this one. So a new drink we just came out with that I worked on with the guys that own this fantastic Mexican restaurant in Connecticut is you do a stirred vodka, a chilled glass, and when you're stirring the vodka, put like three tiers of a smoky mezcal into it. <gasps> Ooh. And it's a fantastic winter martini or Mexican martini, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. That's like my new favorite drink. I love mezcal too. Well, let's have a few of those and then we can all be like, John, <laughs> you're so great. You've done so much for I the design you. world. I just love you. <laughs> you know, I talk about my dad and I got to travel the world together at Leather. We went to Italy. My father and I went to Italy to buy leather. We did maybe six trips a year and we're both drinkers. Because he was older, we take always one night at the beginning where he had to rest. And, and since the leather area is near Vicenza, you fly to Venice. So we'd always fly to Venice, go into the city, and spend the night to relax. And we go to Harry's Bar and drink Harry's Bar martinis, which are the frozen glass and frozen vodka. And that's how I was raised. We bought those same glasses. <laughs> we both had them in our freezers. And it was that experience, part of it, that inspired how to have a clean vodka and those kinds of things. I love this whole story. It is the story of a very like rich and resilient and charmed life full of characters and kismet and full circle situations and deep connections and long relationships and collaborative partnerships. And wow, (laughs) (laughs) you've taken me on a journey. And I feel like it wasn't quite a motorcycle ride because that probably would have been a little too intense (laughs) for me, but it was the sports car for sure. (laughs) Fair enough. I love it. I'm sure I pissed some people off or forgot some things, but that's how it goes. Well, I have loved this conversation. And just to, to wrap it up, I feel like I have a couple of like really important questions that I need to like harvest some wisdom from you before I let you go. I hope I don't let down, but let's go. In terms of how you operate, I mean, we are, you already said you're not really like a good student. You learned in the field when you had a sort of contextual motivation for learning. But in terms of making some of these risky decisions, do you think that was a analytical weighing of pros and cons or more of a gut instinct? Well, I think like most great decisions, it's both. In my opinion, you can't make a gut decision until you have the data. I know that doesn't sound natural. No, it does, because the data informs the gut. And having someone to argue with helps a lot. So we made a lot of decisions, and I think the benefit of not having time is helpful sometimes. I think you can overthink things and question yourself too much. Otherwise, you make a decision and go in. And employees and your fellowship would prefer to have you make the wrong decision than not have a decision. Right, because they feel the uncertainty as a sort of ennui and directionlessness. Exactly. And, and you can always pivot if you make a wrong decision. Until you start working, you don't know if it's right or wrong. And it's great to be wrong. You know, sometimes, as long as you catch it early, it's great to be wrong. Yeah, wrong is information. Wrong is yeah. really valuable information. Yeah, discovering your wrong is important. That's really helpful. And then, you know, since you've been so instrumental in telling the stories of designers, making careers, and giving people their start. I wonder if you have any advice for designers and entrepreneurs that are emerging from school or just getting their careers started right now in this weird time with the pandemic, when there's climate crisis and racial justice crises happening, what do you think is kind of important for them to know or how to calibrate their compass? Well, I think it's an amazing time for design, just like the Great Recession was. 
during the Great Recession, people didn't have a choice to go work for Gensler or these great design firms. There were no jobs. So they went to their cheap lofts in Brooklyn and birthed all these companies. If you remember, like, from Roland Hill to David Weeks, et cetera, et cetera, they're all burned during the Great Recession. And I think that same thing is going to happen now. You hear everybody living at home. If you're living at home, don't watch TV. Create. Now you can be sitting in your basement and be, a, be an internet star. You have this ability to have your work go out there without traveling. So I would say, like, be creative, do what you love, but say, and also what I tell everybody is, say yes. Just say yes to stuff. <laughs> no, stop saying no. Just say yes. Don't work out. You can change it. Um, <laughs> to, you know, take, take a risk and just say yes. And if you have to take the garbage out, take the fucking garbage out. I don't think it's happening so much anywhere. People think they're entitled that certain jobs are below them or above them. Such horseshit today. I think you have to do what has to be done when it has to get done and make yourself that kind of person. I totally agree. And I also think there is something and someone to learn from in, in absolutely every situation. Oh, my goodness. I, I couldn't agree more. From the guy that works in the you know landscaping <laughs> to the one of the greatest designers in the world, you take something from everybody. My father always said, what did you learn today? And you had to come up with something. You did, <laughs> wherever you were. Oh, this has been so wonderful. Thank you for sharing your story with me and with our listeners and for painting such a colorful and storied picture and inspiring us all with your trajectory. Thank you. You make it very easy. Thank you for listening. To see John's fun images and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would please do us a favor and rate and review, we love it. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VD Media with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to discover more great shows. They curate the best of them so you don't have to. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.